Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Report. With us today is Chris Rosini, our co-host. Chris, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Dr. Paul. Very good. Hey, Chris, before we get going with our program, we have a message sharing with our partner at Birch Gold. The global upheaval caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the crippling sanctions on Russian trade are showing to have massive ripple effects across the world, including right here in the U.S. And it's not just at the gas pump. Food prices are soaring right now. To quote President Biden with regards to food shortages, it's going to be real. Friends, inflation continues to skyrocket. As the dollar becomes worth less every day, transition some of your nest egg to something of worth. Gold and silver from Birch Gold. That's right, Birch Gold will help you convert an IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered account in gold and silver. Get started right now. Text RON to 989-898. With thousands of satisfied customers and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, Birch Gold can help you protect your savings. Text RON to 989-898 to get a free info kit on gold. There is no obligation to get this information. Text RON to 989-898 to protect your savings with gold. Very good. And Chris, what do we have in store for us today for our program? Well, Dr. Paul, uh... We, we, it's easy to take a pick, or it's hard to take a pick. There are so many government-created problems out there. Which one should we talk about? Well, one that is in the news now is this big student loan crisis, which has been around for a while now. But uh, Biden is, we're told, taking a hard look at, uh, you know, forgiving these loans. And by forgiving, you know, somebody's going to have to pay them. And if you think the banks are going to pay them, you know, you, you, you might as well have been born yesterday because it doesn't work that way. It's other people that would have to pay, you know, somebody that may have paid their student loans off on their own. Now they have to go pay someone else's or someone who never had student de uh, loan debt or never went to college. Now they're going to have to be forced, not voluntarily, but forced to pay uh, for someone else's decision. You know, and this whole problem, and that's one thing we want to stress, was caused by government to begin with. Uh, you know, they started it with they were going to help people. And you know, whenever they help, it always backfires and creates multiple new problems. Well, they were going to make college, you know, more affordable, more accessible. They love to use that word, accessible. Uh, so they were going to guarantee uh, all these loans to students. And of course, now we're at, uh, you know, years into this and students are struggling on, on their uh, tremendous debt, which you have to feel for them, uh, you know, because they're in this situation. And, uh, you know, the opposite happened, as usual. The, the price of colleges skyrocketed, because if you throw all this money and credit at anything, it's going to drive prices up. So they created huge problems. They drove up the price of education. Kids have all this debt that they are struggling to pay, and it all stems from government help. So, you know, we're going to start off by saying government uh, is not a problem solver, 
Hopefully people start to get this sooner rather than later. It is a problem multiplier whenever it intervenes. Boy, that, that's for sure. You know, this is an interesting subject, even though how dangerous it is is the most important thing. But it's interesting because it invites you to think about why are they doing this? Are they changing the educational product? Uh, that's for, uh, being done for sure. Is it done for uh, economic reasons, for special groups? Who knows what? Is it just the pressure of students that had a tough time paying, paying tuition? It happens that that wasn't a very powerful argument because, uh, you know, my education costs uh, $350 a semester, and I went to a private school, and I could uh, mow lawns and deliver papers and milk and make enough money to pay my tuition. That's not the situation today. You know, there's an old saying goes, and it still exists, and most people would say, yeah, I respect that, the separation of church and state. Uh, it's been threatened, though, even now, you know, with the uh, rules and regulations from COVID. They were invading the pulpits and, and the church on exactly how that could be handled. But uh, I belong to, and I think it still exists, there was an organization called uh, a separation of, uh, of uh, church and uh, education and the state then that to me is really where it should be. But how long have we been involved? A long, long time. In my experience, uh, which is rather short compared to uh, when they first got involved with education, but there's no, no sharp separation and every year it gets worse. Uh, I would say the, uh, there was a big move uh, when I was in college in the 50s. Uh, I was a biology major and uh, I wasn't certain what I was doing, so I was going to say, well, I, I like biology, I'll teach biology. So I was taking an education course, and the uh, head of the department uh, was involved, and uh, uh, it was my teacher at that time. But he came in after having made a trip to Washington. He says, there have been a lot of concerns, and he says, I was concerned. He says, well, I, we are concerned that the government would have overreach and interfere with education. But I went down, and I listened to the people there, and they assured us there would be no government interference ever in the educational process. Well, it hasn't worked out that, quite that way, but the, inter, the intervention has been always humanitarian, you, you know, to help people, you know, that they, they can't, they can't afford the education. And I, what I find ironic is, uh, you know, it started off small, and now it's just totally out of control. If you add up all the federal debt and the private debt involved, which will all be guaranteed, of course, uh, it comes up to like $1.75 trillion. And uh, now they're talking about forgiveness uh, a little bit or a lot. And this is the whole, the whole thing is, is uh, the debt won't be paid. We're, we're, they're just arguing, oh, how are we going to liquidate without too many people hollering and screaming? What's the best thing we can do before November? You know, that sort of thing. So, but the one thing economically you can be assured of is the liquidation of that debt will be like the liquidation of the federal debt and all the rest. It will be liquidated, but it won't be liquidated by the students working harder and the banks uh, working out agreements and systematically paying down and education costs going down and everything would be okay and we'll work our way out. Not going to happen. It's going to be liquidated by inflation. But the interesting thing is, is uh, you, you know, if they say the reason why we can't, can't suspend it now, and we really need to increase the benefits to the students because of the inflation. 
the inflation is going up so fast and it's going up much faster than wages are going up. So they're in a dilemma. So they're not thinking about shutting down. They're thinking about how, we, how can we inflate the currency even more and pass out more money so these students can uh, you know, pay their bills. But that to me is so, so ironic that it was the inflation that was necessary to finance this program that's been going on, you know, for several decades now. And it's just totally, totally out of control that it's, uh, it's, it's something that uh, is, is ironic but understandable. So once again, you can't solve the problem of inflation by printing up more money to try to stop the inflation. That sounds like it, it, might, be, uh, it might be a Democratic Biden argument. The truth is... This whole system, this whole mess, if you go back and look at the history, very, very bipartisan. And, you know, in, in, uh, 19, in the 1950s, Eisenhower, shortly after his inauguration, he won in 52, and in his short time afterwards, he started, H, uh, he started HEW, and that had education in there, the whole works, a big welfare move. And interesting enough, it was that that department was established in unusual uh, uh, circumstance where it didn't get a pre-approval or approval afterwards uh, by the Congress, but it got started, and uh, this and it's been with us since. So I remember that very clearly, and remember that the discussion of that when I was a, a student in teaching education, that sort of thing. But it was in 1979. I was in the Congress. And there was a big vote once again, and that had to do with Jimmy Carter. Uh, education is so important that we have to make it an independent department. So there's, it doesn't have any outside interference. We're going to concentrate on education. So it, it switched, and uh, it, it, once again, it wasn't done by Democrats. It was done bipartisan, as all the increases in all this mess has always been bipartisan. It's all—it's almost like you know the uh, uh, national security votes, the military votes, bipartisan. And that is our big problem: is sorting all this out, know what the problem is, and really be willing to speak the truth and not saying, "Well, it's all Biden's fault. He's the one that messed up the school program." Believe me, it's uh, that people who are serious lose credibility by that. As bad as he is, he wasn't powerful enough to do all this. This has been going on for a long time. You can say the seeds were planted in 1913, you know, mm. with, the, with the establishment, uh, you, you know, of, uh, uh, of the Federal Reserve System and how to pay these bills and deceive the people. Chris? Yes, Dr. Paul, our problems that we're uh, suffering under now did not begin with Obama or Trump or even the Bushes. I mean, this goes back a long, long time. When philosophy changed in this country around the 1850s to 1900, that's when individual liberty would be tossed aside in order to have a government that would scientifically, through policies, try to manage all of society. Today, we're seeing the whole thing just completely fall apart, as it must, you know, and I'm sure there were many people back then who warned that it's all going to fall apart. Well, we're uh, heading in that direction. We may be there soon. But, you know, all these bailouts, we live in a bailout, government bailout society, and it creates moral hazards, meaning uh, you're rewarded, you know, by having others pay for the risks that you took. 
And, you know, the ones that get all the TV time, like Wall Street back in 2008 and TARP and how they had to get all this money in order to save the world from falling apart. And uh, so they were rewarded, kept in business uh, when they shouldn't have been. And what did they do? They were incentivized. They created a much, much bigger problem today than existed back in 2008. So do you think they're going to come back for another bailout once everything falls apart? Of course they are because they were rewarded before, why wouldn't they expect to be rewarded again? You know, and we also have this in, um, you know, people that choose to live in a hurricane or flood-prone area, which is, you know, your right to live wherever you want. But if a hurricane or flood comes in, you can't expect somebody that lives across the country to, you know, make you whole again. And what happens? They'll just do it again. You build right where you were knocked down before. I mean, it's your risk. You have to cover your own risk. And the student debt is just another manifestation of this, you know, having someone else pay, you know, for what turned out to be a bad decision in many cases. Now, if people want to voluntarily bail you out, and people are very giving, especially in America, when something happens, the money flows. You know, you don't need government, uh, you know, sticking its nose in. Then there's nothing wrong with voluntarily being bailed out for a bad decision. But when you're forcing other people to bail you out. That's when the problem comes in that's unjust and, uh, you know, but we live in a society where it is commonplace. Very, very good. And, and uh, Chris, I like the idea you bring up this whole principle of moral hazard uh, because it, it's tricky, it's important, it is a motivator, and sometimes it's right out in the open and, and they, they, know, they know exactly what they're doing. They're playing on sympathies, uh, but they're also violating uh, morality by doing things that they couldn't do otherwise without the, uh, without the uh, spending. But uh, moral hazard does involve uh, humanitarian instincts and the idea that people are compassionate and borrowing money becomes less of an evil than helping people. You know, whether it's w uh, throughout the world, uh, taking care of all the humanitarian needs, those programs never work either, or getting involved in a war for humanitarian reasons, like uh, going into the Middle East and millions of people getting killed. So there's always this moral hazard. But then there's another extension of that, the way I see it, is that uh, under the conditions we have, especially uh, you know, leading up in the last 10 years or so, where it's been an absolute uh, determination, obsession, with getting interest rates down and the CPI up. So the interest rates uh, were down, but people naturally uh, follow, you know, if you didn't have the government or the Fed to mess of things up, interest rates would be an indicator of what to do on whether you should save money, spend money, invest money, or, or whatever. And, uh, and yet if interest rates uh, are lower than they should be, it becomes a moral hazard in that the businessman's instincts is that, you know, interest rates used to be 5% and they're down to 3.5%. I'm going to build a lot more houses than they overbuild, this sort of thing. So there's, uh, there's that mixing up of an instinct that is created. But I put that all in the same category of moral hazard because uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people do it in a, in a way they know what they're doing, but they rationalize and say, well, th this is best. They might say to me, Ron, it's, uh, yeah, I understand we shouldn't have to do all these sanctions and lockdowns and all this stuff, but uh, it's better than going to war. 
And so we'll just train the troops. We'll just send in the ammunition. We'll just send in the weapons. But we're not going to send in the troops. You know, so they, they rationalize that they can uh, do it instead of looking at it on principle. And that's why I like to think about the principle of the separation of school and state. It, the, under under the, our Constitution, there's no authority to have a Department of Education. There's no authority for it to be so ingrained in government rules and regulations and finance with by fiat money. They finance all this with fiat money and they have all kinds of problems. The money is wasted in many ways. And then what does it do? It pushes up, it pushes up salaries. It pushes up a building costs because they have a lot of money. So the moral hazard is just contagious and malinvestment and it continues. And they come around and they say, you know what we need? They're coming up short, the prices are up. And the individuals say this too. We're having trouble paying our bill, electric bill's high. We have to do something about it. Can't the government bail us out? They bailed us out and sent us a lot of money when they had COVID. And uh, didn't that help a lot? Well, the answer to that is not really. Chris. Right, Dr. Paul, <laughs> I'll finish up by saying, uh, you know, naturally we want things, we want the most that we can get with the least amount of effort. Uh, that's why free is so popular. Whenever you see the word free, it works, you know, because it's when you get something for free, it's time and work that you don't have to perform in order to obtain something that you want. So it's rational, you know, our life is short and our time is scarce. So to want something for nothing is it's rational, you know, uh, but that has to be relegated to the voluntary aspect of society. If somebody wants to give you something for free, okay. Uh, something for nothing cannot be an entire system. And that is what we have, and that is what was created with the Federal Reserve. Something for nothing. You know, because people must produce things. You have to have the baker makes the bread, the uh, computer maker, the phones, uh, the medical services, whatever. It, it has to be produced. Even money has to be produced, which is why gold has been money for 5,000 years. It has to be worked for, labored for. It's very hard to get gold out of the ground, you know, and that's why there's little to no inflation of gold. But when the Fed is able to create digits out of thin air, out of nothing, they're literally creating nothing. It's an electronic digit. You can't put it in your hands. And then that can be traded for something that was produced, worked for. So it's like a loophole that they figured out that they could just create this money for nothing and go get all of these real things that people worked for. You know, it's a parasitic system, uh, you know, and it's been around long enough to where a lot of people have noticed this system and they want in on it. That's why you see 40 billion here, 1 trillion here, 6 trillion here. Everybody wants this money out of nothing so that they could go and buy and live uh, the lives that they uh, dreamed of. This is totally unsustainable. It, it, will, it can never work. It can only work for a certain amount of time. Nobody knows how much time it is. But when you look out at the world, you can see that it is not working. It is falling apart. And we have to go back to this person produces, this person produces, and exchange. Not this, let's just create fictional digits and go live it up. So that, that's you know the philosophical issue that we try to hammer every week that you, you can't have this institution that creates a society of something for nothing. 
You know, you're absolutely right. This is not going to continue. Something will happen. And I think most people are realizing there's something seriously wrong. Uh, anybody that watches this program, they know that it does involve spending and monetization of debt and the principle of intervention, both domestically and internationally. So that's, that's all well known. And a lot of people who, uh, you know, might not even watch our program might say that, you know, that does make a lot of sense. We should do something. But the big thing is, is they might concede a little bit of the problem, but then they come up, well, well, we've got to work our way out of this. What, what should we do? And right now, the only thing that they have done that with a pretense that they're going to change things because they're not changing the nature of the program and the principle of transferring a wealth and making somebody else pay for the education, making the person that never went to college, uh, you know, take over these debts. So a lot of times the people who have benefited from these uh, boondoggles end up getting bailed out by people who didn't get any, any benefit. But the one thing they're doing that uh, uh, it might work for a week or two or a month or two, uh, and they started it with COVID because everybody uh, was just in, in a terrible dilemma. They say, "All right, we'll suspend the payments. You don't, you don't have to, you don't have to pay." But this is just temporary, and uh, they've done that. But uh, it, it, and then now they're talking about whether they're going to extend them or what they're going to do, and that is not going to work. That is tinkering that deceives people and they think they're doing it and uh, what they do in that area and the bailouts that they do will be 100% decided by politics, you know, and, and, the, and the election coming up. What is best, you know, for our re-election? What should we do? How should we vote Accor according to the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the effort, will, will it work, work or not? So it, uh, it's not going to work. So you say, well, what, what should, should we do? Well, you know what? Uh, in a way, um, maybe we've just had a suggestion pop up on us, which was uh, uh, interesting and still in the midst of the debate, and that is very, very difficult uh, subject, uh, you know, about, about the abortion issue. Uh, you know, technically, you know, pro-life people now will pass laws not dealing with, uh, you, you, you know, banning abortion. Uh, they're saying, well, the best thing to do is just follow the Constitution. Uh, some of us believe it's an act of violence, and all other acts of violence are dealt with at the states. And it looks like there's a major movement and a lot of talk, and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of antagonism over these two sides. Send it back to the states, and uh, it... it probably won't satisfy either side completely, but it's a step in the right direction. Get it out of the hands of the federal government, and that's a big move. So why, why couldn't we suggest something like that on education? We can't just stop those programs overnight, but what we could do is get this principle that get the government out of the business of sending money, cut the amount of spending, and tell the states they have to deal with this not uh, not labor not national and labor union laws where uh, they're able to do whatever they want on lockdowns and whatever and uh, participate in in these uh, uh, things like uh, regulating for COVID. So that's a suggestion and that principle move in that direction. Well, it wouldn't be smooth, but it might be better than what we're doing now. And we can't we can't cut it off. There'll be the revolution if you just say all programs end tomorrow. That's not going to work. But if you continue, they'll say they will say that'll be chaotic. But the question, the answer to that is, 
If you continue to do what you're doing in any of these areas of government, if we continue to do it, it's going to be a lot more chaotic than that. So what we're trying to do is introduce the notions and the principles that can substitute for interventionism and regulation and divvying up our liberties and, and passing them out and looking at what's happening now uh, through, throughout society, whether it's education, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, cost of living or, or whatever. It's, it, the people know what's going on. They know there's something wrong. But I don't think it's that, that complicated. I think if we restore the principles of liberty, liberty is an individual item. It is not dealt with by passing out to groups. You don't have this group of rights and this group of rights. That's nonsense. Individuals have individual rights, and they have a right to their life and their liberty, and uh, they have one rule to follow, so there is no chaos. They're responsible for everything that they do. They can't hurt or steal from people. Today, we live with lying by government and stealing by government, defrauding the government with the monetary system. So the government's setting a terrible example, so it's up to the people to say to their representatives and to the congressmen that you ought to live within the moral laws that you pretend that we have to live under and you pester us with, with a lot of nonsense. But so I am an optimist in the long run that the, it's very complicated, it's easy to understand, and the answer is not complex because it's the wonderful answer of liberty for the individual, which is the most likely thing that will promote peace and prosperity. I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to the Liberty Report. Come back soon.